Hi, this is John Orberg, and we're in a series called Passage to Wisdom, because we're looking at passages that have great wisdom, and here's the wisdom for today. Tell a friend. One of the ways I first knew that I liked Nancy a lot, on a very first blind date, we stopped by a grocery store because we were supposed to pick up the ice cream, and it was an Alpha Beta store. They had a big advertising campaign back then, led by an actor named Alan Hamill, who would always end his commercials with the tagline, Tell a friend. And we're walking into Alpha Beta and Nancy said to me, did you hear that Alan Hamill died? And I said, no, that was really sad because he was a very likable guy. And then she said, tell a friend. And I thought that was very funny and I like this girl. But the wisdom is there's something about us that requires us to tell a friend. So thank God for people. Thank God for the people in your life. And today, if you're carrying something heavy, if you have a regret, if you're anxious about something, one of the great research in the anxiety field says a basic rule is never worry alone. If you've had a triumph, if you have suffered a failure, if you're struggling with the temptation, don't struggle with it alone. If you're grateful for something, if you want to encourage somebody, tell a friend, tell a friend, tell a friend, because the alternative to that is a life of isolation and withdrawal and hiddenness that is unhealthy and causes us to spiral down and become a victim of the kind of thoughts that I mentioned yesterday, uh, figure so prominently are described so brilliantly by Dostoevsky in his novel, Crime and Punishment. And all of us are subject to that things. We're always crazier all by ourselves than we, when we are with other people. There is something about being together with other people where if I actually name a thought, I'm thinking about doing this, I have this perspective on this other person, craziness becomes much clearer when I bring it into the light. Sin becomes much clearer, shows itself for what it is much more uh, cleanly when I bring it into the light with another person than when I keep it hidden with myself. But there's this strange reluctance inside myself to want to share it with other people precisely because I want to retain the option of going to the crazy place, of going to the dark side. And that is a very prominent feature of the central character in Crime and Punishment, Raskolnikov. That is an indispensable part of his descent and decline. Uh, there is much that is admirable about him from the very beginning. He is, like all of us, a mystery and an enigma and a mixture of that which is good and evil. In fact, Robert Louis Stevenson uh, said that it was reading Crime and Punishment that just undid him. He said it was almost like an illness to him, and it's what inspired him to write Jekyll and Hyde, because Jekyll and Hyde is also the story of each of us. We read about Raskolnikov on the very first page, and I think the third paragraph, that he had become so completely absorbed in himself. Walker Percy says that boredom is the self stuffed with the self. Raskolnikov had become so completely absorbed in himself and isolated from his fellows that he didn't even want to meet any other person. And this theme of alone, 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 darkness hidden over and over and over. I want to be left alone. Raskolnikov's aloneness, even in the midst of other people. My old teacher, Ian Pitt Watson used to say about Jesus that Jesus was often alone, but never lonely. Whereas we are almost never alone, but we're very often lonely. And Raskolnikov was that way. He went to university, uh, but Dostoevsky said he had hardly any friends at the university. He kept aloof from everyone, went to see no one, did not welcome anyone who wanted to see him. And we can get that way. And indeed, 
Everyone soon gave him up. How come I'm always the one that has to reach out? Why am I always the one that has to initiate? Why do I always? Those, those thoughts come to everybody. We all think that we're having to do all of the work. He took no part in the students' gatherings, amusements, or conversations. See, if it doesn't sound a little bit like our day. He worked with great intensity without sparing himself. And he was respected for this, but no one liked him. He worked with great intensity. I live in the Bay Area, and I'll tell you a little secret about the Bay Area. Nobody moves to the Bay Area for relationships. He worked with great intensity. Nobody liked him. He was very poor, and there was a sort of haughty pride and reserve about him, as though he were keeping something to himself. And of course he was. And that something was the sense of uh, vulnerability, the sense of weakness, the sense of dissatisfaction, the temptation to do wrong, which ultimately bore this horrible and malignant fruit. Now in him, it's very dramatic. It's the murder of this uh, crone, pawnbroker, unlikable, cruel, rapacious person uh, that undoes his life and unravels his soul. There is a moment of potential grace that comes to him before the act when a thought occurs to him as if from nowhere, as if it dropped from heaven that he should go see his one friend. He has one friend whose name I think is pronounced Rajumichin. I don't know. I remember reading a Charlie Brown cartoon strip when Linus, the intellectual character, is reading the brother's Karamazov, and somebody asks what he does with all those Russian names, and he says, I just bleep right over them, and I do the same thing. But Raskolnikov has this thought, I could go meet my friend, and this is when he's struggling with the temptation to do this terrible thing. And he muses about this. Of course, I've been meaning to go see him, to ask for his help. He ponders and rubs his forehead, and strange to say, after long musing, suddenly, as if it were spontaneously and by chance, as if it were, a thought comes into his head. Hmm, I shall go to Rajumihin's, of course, but not now. But not now. I'll go there, but not now. Why not now? Because I want to reserve for myself the option of doing that which is wrong. I'm not committed to it yet. Maybe I won't do it. But I want to reserve the option. And I know if I bring it into the light, if I go with my friend and I tell him what I'm thinking of, that door will be closed the craziness of it, the darkness of it. See, when we're nursing temptation, we do not want to bring, tell a friend, tell a friend, tell a friend. What are you dealing with? What do you carry? Tell a friend. And he does not do that because uh, when we are entertaining the possibility of doing something wrong, we do not want to bring it into the light. Dallas Willard has a wonderful story he tells about his granddaughter, uh, Larissa, I think was maybe three years old and she's playing outside and Jane Willard, hi Jane, if you're watching, is watching her. Jane's reading a book and Larissa's behind her and she's got a little hose. She's supposed to be watering the flowers and then she discovers if you put water on dirt, it makes mud. How cool is that? And she gets mud everywhere and Jane sees it. It's a mess and Jane cleans her up and then says, now don't make any more mud. But when you're three years old, that's the promised land is mud. And so Larissa wants to, but she knows she's not supposed to. So what she says to Nana is, don't look at me, Nana, in a real sweet voice. Don't look at me, Nana. Are you looking at me, Nana? And it's okay, I won't look. Three times, don't look at me, Nana, Dallas writes, thus the tender soul of a child shows us it is necessary for us to be unobserved in our wrong. Oh my goodness. 
God comes to the, to the Garden of Eden. Where are you, Adam? Don't look at me, God. And it is this uh, propensity for isolation and hiddenness not to disclose what is deepest inside of us that becomes like a, a greenhouse, like an incubator for that which is most twisted. Craziness requires isolation. Uh, sin requires darkness and hiddenness. And of course, part of what happens is we're not even aware of the split of the hiddenness inside ourselves. And so we become incapable of community. Eleanor Stump calls this willed loneliness. For me to be in community with you requires that I disclose myself to you. And the closer that I'm to be with you, then I will disclose that which is most vulnerable inside me, my deepest sense of weakness or fear or temptation or guilt. But see, what sin does is it tries to get me to deceive myself. I'm given over to a depraved mind. I don't become self-aware. We all know people that are not self-aware. And if I'm not aware of a feeling inside myself, I cannot disclose it to you. And so I become lonely and my refusal to face up to the truth about me uh, makes it inevitable that I will be lonely from other people, willed loneliness. And the alternative to that is to be invited into a new kind of community with a depth of love and honesty that had never before known. This is, this is the antidote to what it is that Raskolnikov felt. Jesus begins this new community, and it's described in Acts 2. This is part of it. Listen to these words. Every day, notice the intensity of community. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They were involved in worship and prayer and spiritual life. They broke bread, gathered together around the table, in their homes, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And that little word sincere means they took off their masks. They didn't hide. They, they bared their souls in appropriate and healthy ways. There'd never been a community like that. Tell a friend, tell a friend. And there they would find healing for their souls. There they would find relief for their anxiety. There they would find guidance in their confusion. There they would find encouragement in their loneliness. There they would find hope in their despair. Thank God for people. My friend Grace came over last night for dinner. Hi, Grace, if you're watching this. Man, it was so good to be with Grace. Thank God for people today. Tell a friend. And I'll see you tomorrow.